Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. We read in 1 Samuel 17 that a mighty warrior by the name of Goliath confronted God's people. He mocked them and their God and proposed some one-on-one battles which no one all of Israel was willing to engage against him. David alone opposed him, not because he thought he was strong enough in and of himself, because David knew the Lord was mighty to save. David conquered him with the support of divine strength. This battle and David's victory were a type. They were a portrayal of the battle and the victory of which Christ, the son of David, achieved against the devil. Jesus also defeated the devil through divine power. He was the stronger one who came upon the mightily armed one and took his armor and pillaged his spoils. The lion from the root of Judah has victoriously conquered. And now he has become the salvation and the power and the kingdom and the might of our God. Just as David fought on behalf of the people to defeat the wicked foe, so too Christ our Lord fought on our behalf to defeat our wicked foe. In today's gospel, this battle and victory of Christ over the devil is initiated. Here it is recorded how Christ, immediately after his baptism, at the beginning of his ministry, was tempted by the devil in various ways in the wilderness. Nevertheless, he was victorious, and he sent the devil running. I believe it's important to understand that Jesus' entire ministry was filled with temptation. In Luke's version of this account, he ends... He ends it with these words saying, the devil departed for a while, waiting for an opportune time to again come against Jesus. He even concludes his ministry with temptation. On the cross, if you remember, our Lord is taunted with words that echo these very words from the devil. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Christ's entire life was indeed one of contesting against temptation, and yet he was without sin so that he might save you, so that he might deliver you. And one thing this should teach us is that Christians, as soon as they are welcomed and accepted into God's kingdom through baptism, you must also be subjected to the devil's temptations. If the devil pursued Christ, why in the world would he spare you? As it is said, if you want to be God's servants, then prepare yourself for temptations. You are received into the church through baptism. But the church that you are received into is a church militant. In this life, we are at war. That is why we must also endure severe hardships as a good soldier of Christ. The church exists right in the middle of a battlefield. In baptism, we are put on Christ, so we should not be surprised when the devil attacks us as he did our Lord. In baptism, you are spiritual warriors equipped and outfitted with the very armor of God. And you're to utilize this armor against the devil. Paul says that all those who fight faithfully, that they will be crowned as victors in Christ. There's a question, though, that I think might confront us as we look at this text. What was Christ's motivation in going out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? Why did he do it? We're told very clearly that it's the Holy Spirit himself who led Christ into the wilderness. And he was led there that he might do the work he came to do. And that work was to destroy the works of the devil. 
that he might redeem us. Now part of this involved fasting. So our Lord fasted 40 days and 40 nights. But again, the question comes, why? Why did he fast? Now the 40 days and 40 nights, I'm sure as most of you know, the number 40 is quite important in the Bible. In particular, here you can go back to Israel wandering in the wilderness. But more importantly is this fasting. And again, it was all for you and your benefits. We just heard that our first parents, they fell in the garden by eating the forbidden tree against God's, the fruit from the forbidden tree against God's commands. What they had destroyed with their eating, Christ would make right and atone for by his fasting. Therefore, he died for your benefits. Even though he himself is the prince of life, even though he is the tree of life. Our Lord fasted for your benefit because he, of course, is the living bread that comes from heaven. And he is overflowing with the fullness of life in himself. Also, Christ wanted to teach us some important things about fasting. First and foremost, true fasting does not consist in giving up specific foods so that you can make satisfaction for your sins, so that you can somehow earn God's merits or salvation. Instead, St. Augustine says that the primary fast, the true fast, the God-pleasing fast, is a person who abstains from the lusts of the flesh, which strive against the soul, where a person does not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And all Christians take up this fight, this fast daily, as they fight against sin and strive to live in righteousness in accordance with God's holy commands. So, too, this does bring us to some other important points about fasting. First, I want to consider what our fathers in the faith called the daily fast, moderation. This is something our fathers in the faith talked quite a bit about, and of which, quite frankly, we talk very little about. One of the main purposes of fasting throughout the church here, including during Lent, is that it disciplines the body and soul. It helps teach you self-control. It helps you with the true fast of abstaining from and fighting against sin. Therefore, they called moderation the daily fast. So Johann Gerhard said that moderation is an appropriate restraint in eating and drinking and other areas of life so that you become more adept at praying, skillful in your callings, and in the exercise of godliness. And this moderation is of such vital importance that Christ our Lord himself says, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life, and that the day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the earth. I mean, consider, if it wasn't so important, Christ would not have used such stern words about it. Now, one of my favorite sections on this whole topic is from David Petraeus in his wonderful little book on a summary of the faith. His whole section of the Sixth Commandment takes up two pages, two small pages, but it's quite brilliant, and it all changed my mind on how to approach the Sixth Commandment, how to approach these kind of issues of fasting and other things. He says on moderation, it is the virtue which restrains the appetites for food and drink, so they hinder neither prayer nor sleep. Its opposites are gluttony, that is overindulgence, drunkenness, and excessive abstinence, that is the other side of the coin, abstaining too much from things. Now, in this section, this is the third part. First, he talks about chastity, the purity of our entire life. 
Then he talks about modesty, having a sense of shame before God and man. And then he brings in moderation to tie it all together. So that all three of these work as a beautiful trilogy of chastity, modesty, moderation working together to help strengthen us against sin. Luther himself put it this way in a prayer on the Sixth Commandment. Help us to avoid excessive eating, drinking, and sleeping, and to resist laziness. Grant that by fasting, careful eating, and proper clothing and care of the body, we may watch and toil to become useful and fitted for good works. And then right after that, Luther prays that Christ would help us mortify the flesh. That is, that he helps us to put to death all evil inclinations and all lusts of the flesh. Now, I believe that one of the reasons that we as Christians today struggle so much with this idea of fasting, especially this daily fast of moderation, is that our culture despises moderation. You cannot live in a consumerist culture that depends on you to not be moderate in anything without being impacted by it. The liturgies of the human city encourage unchecked consumerism, insatiable desire for goods, and 24-7 consumption. Whereas the liturgy of the city of God is a liturgy of thankfulness and contentment. And then I think with fasting in general, the reason we as Lutherans struggle is because we've seen so many abuses of it throughout church history. And so oftentimes we just throw it out completely because of those abuses. Even though Jesus himself says, when you fast. I also think what happens is, especially around Lent, we miss the connection between fasting, prayer, and almsgiving. So we give something up, and then we kind of don't think about anything else. We just give up that thing, and it can often become just kind of a diet, or some kind of fad that we go through. Whereas in the Bible, and throughout church history, you fast so that you can be more attentive to prayer and reading your Bible and helping those in need. It's not just that you give something up, but you replace it with something. I'm sending out a really wonderful article by Reverend David Peterson in your weekly updates today on that very thing. Now let's consider the three temptations. The first temptation is to mistrust God's goodness, that is to doubt God. Satan said, if you are the Son of God... Man, these stones become bread. That is, since you're suffering so much hunger, you must not be God's son. Satan asked Jesus to turn stones into bread in order to prove that he is indeed the son of God. But here's the problem. The verse right before chapter 4, verse 1, is God the Father declaring from heaven, this is my beloved son. Thus, Satan questioning of Jesus' identity is once again Satan questioning God's word, just as he did in the garden. And the challenge to turn stones to bread becomes not just a way for Jesus to provide for himself, but for Jesus to prove in his own strength that he really is who God said he is. For Jesus to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God means that he holds to and he affirms the reality of what the Father had just spoken about his own identity. The word that God declared him to be God's son, it is that word, and that word alone, upon which Jesus lives. If he were to make stones to prove his identity to the devil, he would be living not on God's word, but he would quite literally be living on bread. The bread would be the final proof 
the final proof that his identity really is that of the Son of God. Now the devil does the very same thing to you. When you find yourself suffering any need, when you are in poverty, sick, or suffer any other misfortune, the devil puts these very same thoughts into your head. If you're actually God's child, he says, you would not suffer more than others. If God really loved you, this would not have happened to you. You should learn from Christ the very same answer. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We too live on the word that God speaks concerning us, rather than the bread of what we can achieve. Consider, God declares you to be his children, without condemnation, righteous in Christ's righteousness, crucified with, raised with, hidden in Christ. Your identity as those united to Christ is something you receive from the mouth of your Lord in your baptism. It is the word upon which you live. In fact, it is your very life. This life does not and cannot come from the bread of your own efforts. It comes only and wholly from the word of the Lord's mouth. And what is that word? The Lord puts very name upon you. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Even though everything else may fail you, God's goodness and power shall not fail you. It is in his word and power that sustains you and nourishes you. You have his word of promise. You have his very name put upon you. Second temptation is a temptation to be presumptuous, especially when it comes to God's care and protection. Now here, by being presumptuous, we mean that you assume God has to come through for you, even though you're being disobedient to his word. When the devil is unable to accomplish anything with the first onslaught, he takes Christ and puts him on the very pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, as you dash your foot against a stone. Now it should not surprise you that the Lord allows himself to be led up to the pinnacle of the temple, or in the next section onto the very high mountain, because our Lord himself allowed himself to be led to the cross and nailed to it for you and your salvation. Now it's interesting here, the devil wants Jesus to do something outside of the bounds of his calling so that he might make a reputation for himself. I mean, if Jesus jumps off of the pinnacle of the temple and angels catch him and bring him safely to the ground, they'd be quite impressive. So too, the devil takes great pains to bring things to a point in your life where you would overstep the bounds of the divine word. And in your own callings, on account of your own pride and presumption. How often does the devil come to you and appeal to your pride to get you to do something that you know is against God's word? And yet you still expect God to bless you when you're all done with it. Whatever it is that you did. And the devil tries to convince you that you deserve that blessing. God owes you. You're more special than everyone else. Here, too, we should learn to reply just as Jesus did. It is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You're tempting God when you want to test his power, his wisdom, and truth. When it's not necessary and when there is no promise of God concerning the very thing you're trying to do. Do not tempt him. Instead, humble yourself in obedience to his holy words. 
The third temptation is to idolatry, to apostasy. The devil led Jesus up on a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of this world and their glory, and said to him, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. The same thing happens to you today. The devil beautifully portrays before your eyes the glory of this world. All its riches, glory, and power, and pleasure are presented before you, that your heart might cling to those things. Let's be honest, it works for a great many people. They waver from God and his truth, and these things become their gods. And they abandon the true God for worthless idols. No earthly or temporal thing in this world is able to establish and instill rest and peace into your hearts. Only God, the one true God, is able to do it. And yet, Satan keeps coming along. And he says, look here, it doesn't have to be so hard. Here's this broad, easy path. Here's a life of ease devoid of suffering. God's going to make you suffer, but I won't. Here's the easy way to all the things you really want. The fact is, too, if you already have these earthly things, they can never become something your heart relies on, trusts, or worships. And of course, God's word should be never, ever set aside for them. You should serve the true God only and worship him alone, as our Lord says. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve money and stuff. So Paul even say that a greedy tightwad is a slave to idols. Instead, we must keep our eyes on him who alone fills us with what we truly need. I think Psalm 81 brings this together really beautifully. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you listen to me, there shall be no foreign god among you, nor shall you worship any foreign god. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. You should have fed, he would have fed them also with the finest of wheat, and with honey from the rock I would have satisfied you. I love the way the psalmist brings this together. He takes this idea about idols not being able to fulfill you. Not giving you what you need. On the flip side, the Lord promises that if you open your mouth like a little baby bird who's being fed by his mother, that he will fill it up. That he will take care of you. And what he promises to feed you with is the finest of wheat and honey from the rock. That is, he promises to give you Christ and all the benefits that you have in him. Now Christ's temptations show us how we too are tempted and can overcome temptation. But more importantly, they show you Christ's victory is your victory. Though the first Adam fell in paradise, our Lord was victorious in the wilderness. Though Adam brought sin and death upon us through eating, Christ brought you redemption through his fasting. Whereas Adam craved to be like God, Christ hungered not for food, but indeed he hungered for your very salvation. The victory of the Lord is your triumph. So even as you fight temptation, he works through you and fights within you to help you conquer sin. And when you do sin, when you give in to that temptation, it is in him that you actually find forgiveness. His strength becomes your might amidst your weakness. He not only wants to be the commander of his soldiers, but he also wants to give you the crown of victory. He strengthens you so you can't overcome. And so he gives you these promises. And these promises are found in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. To him overcomes, I'll give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. He overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. 
To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God, and I will write on him my new name. It is in Christ Jesus your Lord who defeated the devil in all his assaults that you are victorious. In him, your champion and savior, you too will overcome, and you will inherit all the glorious things that he has promised for you. Amen. The peace of God passes on your sin and guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus.